The Electrician Podcast, powered by Schneider Electric. We're bringing you the electrical industry experts you need to hear to discuss the topics you need to know about. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of The Electrician Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Miller, and I'm very excited to announce today's guest, Richard Browning, the founder and chief TEF pilot of Gravity Industries. Hi, Richard. Hey, morning. Uh, for our listeners who aren't aware of what you get up to and your crazy inventions, could you give a little introduction? Yeah, sure. And if you permit me, I'll, I'll qualify it with a little bit of background as well, because it slightly more explains why I've ended up uh, running a jet suit company. Uh, so I, I was an oil trader with BP in the city of London for about 16 years. I spent around uh, six years in the Royal Marines Reserve as well in London alongside that. And those two experiences, I suppose, uh, gave me, uh, I, I suppose that the Royal Marines gave me somewhat of a passion for human capability. We'll come back to that in a minute. You know, the whole idea that you can achieve more than you imagine from both a physical and mental point of view if you keep hammering away at something. But my time with BP I, as a trader was very much about taking, kind of not being afraid to take calculated risk and survive the downside, you know, very much the bread and butter of an innovator. So um, they really just, the BP experience really reinforced a passion that I had for designing, building, making, breaking things, <laughs> you know, that I got um, really growing up around my aeronautical engineer father. And the rest of my family was from the world of aeronautical engineering as well. So if I wind the clock back about four years, I hatched this idea and frankly, the long, you know, latest in a long line of unusual ideas, some of which have turned into little businesses, others, um, many of which haven't worked. Um, but this idea was around human flight. You know, could you, as ludicrous as it sounded, reimagine human flight by adding just the right amount of horsepower to the human frame and using the body as the flight structure and the brain as the balancing engine? Because when you take a step back and you think, gosh, it's amazing how many different roles the human body and brain, if you like, has been applied to. I mean, just look at the Olympics through to being a nurse or a jet fighter pilot or a you know, magician or a banker or whatever. It's amazing how adaptable this machine is. So for no reason other than just the joy of the challenge, I set about this idea of trying to add some degree of propulsion and thrust to the human form. And I settled on little micro gas turbines because their power to weight ratio is pretty phenomenal. And I mean, you can see uh, all the uh, trials and tribulations of this and certainly lots of what we have later gone on to do if you look at uh, YouTube if you look for gravity industries on YouTube you can see a lot of this or take on gravity as a handle on Instagram um, and yeah I just failed my way ca carefully and safely as I could uh, in my evenings and weekends to the point where I had two little jet engines either side of each arm and a larger one uh, around the back well that was eventually originally I had a little one on the back of each leg ludicrously enough as well um, and I managed to yeah lift off the ground and fly around in somewhat what later got uh, look well got recognized as looking a bit like an Ironman suit that was not the ambition but it's quite fun how it does not look dissimilar and so yeah I sit here now um, you know uh, hopefully we're all coming out of lockdown around the time we're recording this um, but yeah just before lockdown you know hit the UK we we finished event number 103 in 30 separate countries that we've gone and flown in. Uh, we were building a race series, which is a bit on pause, but ready to go. Uh, we've trained 50 clients. We've done numerous uh, military search and rescue SWAT team kind of things around the world. And it's been the most miraculous and unplanned journey. Uh, super impressive. Uh, any of our listeners, I really recommend you go and have a look on YouTube if you haven't seen the jet suits in action yet. It's really phenomenal. Um, Personally, I've, I've watched some of the videos. I mean, it's amazing what you're doing. And obviously, there's been lots of iterations of the suits. Um, 
with the additions of wings now in terms of the suit. But where do you see the next improvement in the suit? What's next for the jet suit? Yeah, so if I split it, I mean, your question you know, implies more on the, on the technical side. So just quickly on the commercial side, it is about more client training. We just set up a Goodwood, for instance, we're doing more client training there and think of it, you know, you clip into a sort of rock climbing safety tether on a slightly raised platform and you essentially can't hurt yourself at all and you learn very quickly. We had Bear Grylls only, probably supposed to be secret, but we only had him last week and he learned, and with his son actually, within the morning. Um, so we're doing more of that. Uh, we're building the race series and uh, lots of other things. But yes, from a technical point of view, which if I'm honest, is the bit that I find the most fascinating, otherwise I wouldn't have embarked on this journey in the first place, is indeed around not only the ever-increasing power-to-weight capability of the suit. We built um, two additional versions, uh, one that can lift an additional 20 kilos and another one, which is a bit of a monster, that can lift an additional 50 kilos. Uh, now that can be fuel, in which case you can go an awful lot further than you can at the moment. But, the, but you've touched on it already. It's the wing evolution, which I find really fascinating. And given your audience, I'm sure a fair number of your audience will be familiar with the F-35. And uh, maybe a slightly smaller number will be familiar with the Harrier uh, jump jet, as it was called. Strangely, how we fly is not a million miles different from those two aircraft. We fly by vectoring thrust downwards and you sort of blow yourself up in the air and it doesn't sound very controlled way, uh, but it is. Um, and that's how we fly. And we do very fine arm control movements to adjust the degree to which you're vectoring down, which is why we can get this ludicrous stability. I mean, I managed to receive a, a sip of a cup of tea and eat some biscuits that my wife was feeding me as a slightly unusual lockdown stunt we did a few weeks back, just to demonstrate how ridiculously controlled it is. Um, now, it follows though, what does the Harrier do after it, and I mean, to be fair, they don't usually do this, but it, they can take off vertically and then land back again vertically. Um, but after they've done that, well, what do they do? They vector the thrust backwards and start accelerating as a jet fighter would do normally, generating lift from the wings. Well, we took a leaf out of their book and thought, why don't we try the same thing? And we've noticed when you travel 40, 50 miles an hour, which you can do very easily with this, your body naturally leans into the airflow. It starts generating very crude kind of ram air lift and you start to notice you don't need to vector down so much. So if you follow that concept forward and you add a wing suitor leg wing, then your legs very quickly pick up the airflow, uh, the leg wing inflates and your leg starts generating some of the lift the rear engine was supposed to be generating. But instead the rear engine starts generating thrust because it started gradually sort of shunting you, it's gradually pointing backwards so therefore shunting you forwards. Just running with the leg wing, we managed to reset our own Guinness World Record, I think it was about November last year, at 85 miles an hour, 135 kilometers an hour. And it's, I mean, that's just scraping the surface in terms of what's possible. In fact, the main limitation has been to try and keep it safe because going that kind of speed, even though you're only 15, 20 feet over the water, is going to be a, a really bad jet ski, jet, jet ski crash. <laughs> um, so actually, it's the transition to aerodynamic flight and back out again, which is the bit that is technically most fascinating. And I tell you, when you're flying it, I'm the only human being that's kind of done this. Well, you know, a person in our team, and I mean, the Jetman guys in Dubai and Eve Rossi, who I know very well, are doing something not dissimilar now, but kind of different. Um, they're using uh, vector control nozzles to achieve the, the you know, the, the stabilization piece initially. Um, that that transition and transition back out is absolutely fascinating. And again, there's quite a bit on, on YouTube around this. It has just been a, a learn live while you're doing it, seat of the pants kind of thing. But it is an amazing feeling to feel that acceleration and feel yourself flying like a little human jet fighter and then transition back out, dial up the power again and go into sort of 
of sort of reheat burn as you hover again and then land. That is just an amazing experience. So it's that bit, that was a long answer, but that bit that I find most fascinating, as you can probably tell. I, I mean, it, it must be fascinating. I, I, I would only imagine what it is like to fly through there at 135 kilometers an hour. Um, is, is it scary or at that point, have you flown so much that you're not really thinking, you're more focusing on other elements? Yeah, I, I mean, despite what it, what it might look like, I am not a risk taker, daredevil kind of, you know, roll a dice and see whether I make it or not. I am absolutely not that person. Uh, we look very objectively at what we're doing and we try to manage the downside. You know, and I'll be honest, the, the Guinness World Record thing is probably the most dangerous thing we've done. But even that, you know, we, the reason we're not flying at 100 feet is because we just don't need to. And it's really dangerous. You just increase the energy levels of a, of a problem. So 20 feet, you know, over water, it, it is going to be like having a sort of speedboat crash. You possibly could get knocked out. But again, you'll float because of all the safety gear. And, you know, it's manageable just. But I don't want to make a habit of doing that at the moment with the current setup. Um, so consequently, I don't have kind of outright fear. I have trepidation and I have a sincere respect and like a constant self-analyzing risk management loop in my head, scanning. You imagine when you're flying at an event over ground and you're thinking, yeah, okay, you know, it's grass. I'm 15 feet over the grass. You know, I've fallen a number of times from that height on grass. It's no fun. I've got a couple of bruises from one couple of weeks ago, actually. You know, it's no fun, but I used to cycle commute across London for 10 years. And that's, I frankly, more dangerous, I think. If then I suddenly get caught by a gust of wind with a wing system and I suddenly zip up to 80 feet, you know, I'm, I'm going higher than the trees, a red light comes in on my head and goes, right, this is not good. Let's get out of this domain as quickly as we can and make it safe again. So, you know, as long as that little algorithm is running in my head, <laughs> then I am as safe as I can make it. It's nothing ever is safe in life. I might get killed in a car crash on the way to an event with a team, you know, yeah. but we take a sensible measured you know, uh, attitude towards it. I, that the same cannot be said for every form of unusual flying you see on YouTube, where yeah. you only have to look at it sensibly and think: if you get a technical failure when you're doing that, you're just going to die. If the yeah. conclusion of anything we do is that answer, I am not proud of myself. So we try to always avoid that. This is a question I've often wondered. Um, so you were an oil trader. Um, I know you're in the Royal Marines as well. But how did you go from day trader to um, you know, techie inventor building all these systems. Where where did you get the knowledge, or how do you absorb knowledge um, in this pursuit of flight? Yeah, it's growing up, up, up around my father. So uh, you know, he was an aeronautical engineer, and I used to build and make things with him. And you know, I could probably describe how a helicopter flies using a swash plate deflection and everything at, at probably age ten. I would have thought just because he constantly talked about aviation and aeronautical engineering and my grandfather one was a wartime pilot and you know the other one was a civil pilot and the other grandfather was Sir Basil Blackwell used to run western helicopters so <laughs> I don't know how much was inherited and how much was just osmosis but I, I, I'm naturally quite a hands-on technical kind of person I'm fascinated by you know take a vacuum cleaner part I remember taking apart a TV a cathode ray TV as a kid you know and and I slightly accidentally tapping the back of the fragile part of the cathode ray tube don't do this everybody yeah. Uh, and then you get the vacuum suck in implosion. It felt like my eyeballs are coming out. And, you know, you, <laughs> you try and learn as safely as you can. But, you know, I, I, I've got a sort of, I suppose, a natural engineering intuition, which gives you usually just enough knowledge, A, to go and explore further and even have the informed questions with the real experts or go and actually have an experiment and a foray in a way that you know enough to be safe. Right. Like the very first time I got hold of a gas turbine, I understood intuitively entirely how it worked in concept. Not that I could build one or 
you know, reprogram it or anything, but I, I knew enough about what was going on to, to be able to play with it, understand what the risks were, blade off and things like that, understand that actually surprisingly jet fuel is the same grade as diesel, which it doesn't form a vapor cloud like gasoline. And, you know, it, it's knowing enough to be confident to go and explore, but not so little that you've never got the confidence to get out there. Um, so yeah, it, it's difficult. I mean, I guess I've just, I've just got that domain knowledge and I'm not afraid to go and complement it when I'm lacking in something. One of the other questions I was interested in is um, you started off, you mentioned you started off with the, the single turbine, you know, with the bucket uh, in the field and you moved to two. At what point did you decide that you were ready to take it to 3D printing? Um, where was that leap in your mind or was it just constant iterations? No, I, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't a constant moment. Really. It wasn't a sudden moment. Um, I remember we got a, it was a, a little old Ultimaker um really some years even a year or so before i launched the company in 2017 and it was just because really interesting technology it it, it it was branded as you know the whole arena back then was branded as rapid prototyping which felt very much up our street and for small experimental plastic parts which you know on the face of it you kind of think oh you know there's not that many examples where i think i can use that but it's amazing once you get familiar with um, you know, how you can design some very quickly. I used to use SketchUp of all things, very high tech, um, knock up a, a quick part, print it out probably overnight, and then you could go and that would, that would massively speed up your ability to go and experiment with stuff. Um, and that's just escalated now into the fact that, you know, the suits behind me uh, here are all 3D printed. I mean, um, you know, everything from aluminium to steel to titanium to polymer. Um, and it's, it, we've grown up as the technology has enhanced and got more and more capable. and it's just perfect for us because we're not producing a hundred thousand of anything. We don't need to injection mold millions of pieces. Um, and frankly, every time a new one arrives, I was just off a call this morning with one of my team who has just ordered another part to be printed by, to be clear, much more fancy machines than we have. Um, you know, and I guarantee as soon as that arrived within minutes of us unpacking that we'll spot things we'll want to improve, <laughs> yeah. which is fine for 3d printing. Apart from if you feel a bit sad, you spent all that money on the one that's just arrived, you know, yeah. you change the CAD design and send it off again and off you go. And it's perfect for our rapid evolutionary process. This ethos of rapid iteration, um, and learning from failure, how important is this to you? Yeah, massively. Um, I, I'm very clear that uh, failure is an integral part of innovation. I mean, it's, it's not the bit everybody talks about so much. Uh, I mean, they throw it away as buzzwords and catchphrases. But actually, when you're in the midst of an innovative journey, doing anything quite meaningful, you're spending most of the time agonizing over whether you're mad or stupid or going down the wrong road. And there is no magic bullet, magic kind of pill, magic kind of guidance that you can read or whatever that will say, oh, hang on, you know all that perseverance you've got as a natural innovator and entrepreneur. Now pause that and go over there now, because it turns out this is the wrong pathway. Trying to turn to juggle those two things is so uh, agonizing. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's the path you have to go on. I mean, you know, life, if, if life was easy, it wouldn't be worth doing, right? I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of, I've sort of reconciled myself from my, my what, 41 years of life experience that the, the harder the pathway, the more prospective and exciting the potential, you know, uh, you know, goal will be or, or findings will be at the other end. You know, you're, you could probably use better a mountaintop analogy. But, um, you know, as a result, um, if you're going to set yourself big challenges, big targets of uncovering stuff that's never been done before, there's a lot of people in this world who have tried a lot of things and it's quite hard to do things new nowadays. So you're going to have to go through a lot of heartache and a lot of, lot of challenges in order to really find new stuff. Um, so, 
yeah, I'm very aware of that. I think our key mantra and our key ethos to help minimize the pain down that pathway um, is, is try and make risk when it manifests, so failure, um, as survivable as possible and recoverable as possible. I hate this idea, I've already mentioned it, sort of roller dice and well, I'll throw all my money at something or I'll fly to 100 feet and see if it works or I'll, I don't know, I'll just go and gate crash, you know, central London, fly down the Thames, trailing a flag and hopefully everybody will love it and I won't get shot by the armed police. All three of those examples are not clever in my mind. Um, you know, it's a gamble whether it'll work. And in some of those scenarios, you literally won't get back up again. Um, so our ethos is very much about, um, you know, make every foray, every experiment, every, um, uh, you know, every venture you, uh, every iteration recoverable, you know, from those, uh, from those three perspectives, safety, reputation, and financial. I mean, that's it's great advice. Our listeners, you know, electricians, electrical contractors, electrical engineers, I've spoken to a lot of them, and a lot of them display the same sort of curiosity you've been talking about, um, where they have anecdotal stories of, you know, opening their father's TV and playing around with the internal dynamics. And I know a lot of them have gone on to set up successful companies. Um, and others that I've spoken to have potential innovations and ideas that they're looking to pursue. What would be your advice um, for anyone who's looking to, you know, pursue a passion or maybe just anecdotally from where you decided this project was more than a project and you set up Gravity Industries? Right. So to, to answer your question, I would say, you know, again, it's about minimizing the downside. I got this to fly while still holding down a day job because I did it in evenings yeah. and weekends and I ha had this sort of passion to just keep trying because you know what the, the the heartache of not sleeping very much was worth it compared to doing the sort of binary thing of having an idea leaving the day job burning through the savings and then seeing if this idea works I tried to minimize the downside risk by getting the whole thing working then experimenting with like and, and talking to a lot of people about forming a brand and working out how to launch it and having some ideas of how to build it into a business model before I, long before I, um, uh, yeah, but before I actually got anywhere near, uh, you know, actually severing my ties with the, you know, the mother organization, if you like, you know, my, my, my yeah. day job, especially yeah. after a six year career. Um, and actually even then I managed to negotiate a career break where if it had all gone wrong and not worked out, I could conceivably have gone back. So, I think I'd advise people to wherever possible, again, take the same ethos. Don't mistake being an entrepreneur with gambling everything in one shot. Every successful entrepreneur will probably have a story of, um, you know, of trying something multiple times. You know, the, the famous Dyson example with thousands of prototypes, right? If he'd thrown all his yeah. money at the first prototype, it wouldn't have been a very successful story. Um, yeah. So try and minimize it. Don't give up your day job. Just try and fuel by your own passion. Try and you know, embark down that journey as cheaply and simply as you can. I used to repurpose things like child rucksack baby carriers and, you know, as the structure and frame for a jet suit to be clear that that would just take the weight of the fuel and the engine. The harness was then threaded through it and it onto you. So I'm not hanging myself off one of those, but uh, you know, and I used to use um, electric hammer drill triggers. Um, I had a broken drill. I ripped the trigger out and used that as a throttle trigger. You know, I did I spend 50 yeah. grand on trying to get a repurpose or trying to get a custom built one? No, I got something that was about to go in the bin. So try and make it as quick and as cheap and as, as um, I, I suppose, um, insightful as possible to quickly de-risk what you're going to go and do. Uh, some great advice, Richard. I, I, 
got a more personal question for you. If you look back four years ago, would you have ever imagined the success and amazing experiences you've had today? Yeah, I, 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 I'm. This is a this is a fun question. This um, yes and no. So no, I would never have banked on it, and no, I wouldn't have wasted much sleep on imagining this scenario. But if I didn't have a five percent belief that this was slightly possible, I wouldn't have had the energy, perseverance, and drive to get to where I've got to. You know, every entrepreneur has to dream big, even if they think there's a low possibility. They have to have that dream in there. So. I could, I, I, I did dare dream that if I could somehow make a human being fly in that kind of ludicrous way that, I mean, it, I can, it's just amazing doing it yourself. You get a fraction of that experience watching it live and that seems to be pretty mind-blowing for most people to see it. Um, I could kind of forward imagine it would be, should be pretty amazing and therefore would be, should be, maybe <laughs> um, quite enthralling to the wider world, but you never want to go and bet the house on it. So it's amazing to find that kind of actually seems to be the case after three years of traveling around the world doing it. <laughs> so you, you know what I mean? I, I think you have yeah. to have, um, I, I just talked recently, uh, somebody else about, you know, Elon Musk saying, you know, he's going to get humanity to Mars, you know, to colonize Mars. I mean, it, it, that's like a very public version of the same thing. You know, he's got to believe it's possible. That's yeah. got to be amazing to go to bed at night thinking I might well achieve it, but is he guaranteed to achieve it? No. I mean, that's what makes it such a grand challenge. Um, it's difficult. Yeah. I think a lot of people find that hard to imagine. They either want to know they're definitely going to do it or it's not possible. Living in this world of uncertainty, but, they, but, but just ambition is, is not a comfortable place for a lot of people. And what's your favorite location and flight so far? Do you have a favorite flight or, I mean, we... oh, I mean, they're all so different. I mean, one, there's been several, many where you have to pinch yourself to believe you're about to do what you're going to do. I mean, there's, there's one that's quite famous for doing a ludicrous number of views on LinkedIn of all places. I think it did something like 9 million views on LinkedIn. And that was me flying in my old Royal Marines beret around the new Queen Elizabeth aircraft carrier off the coast of Washington, flying out unannounced to the audience. I was organized by the Washington embassy, but um, unannounced to the audience on the ferry boats coming in with all the Pentagon and DOD officials. Honestly, I mean, it was the embassy's fault, but could there have been a better way to have shown off the potential of what we've got? None of those folks, and they're all ridiculously decorated generals and admirals and whatever. Um, I just appeared, bang, straight in front of them with an aircraft carrier in the background. And just as they see me there, I was gone again. I mean, it just blew their yeah. minds. And slightly embarrassing that the talk of the whole event was supposed to be the whole launch of a $3 billion aircraft carrier sprinkled with $100 million F-35s. And all people were talking about is the <laughs> Royal Marine who can magic out you know, nowhere. Um, and come and surprise them. So, um, you know, think that, 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 you know, both enthralling and ridiculous and the kind of thing you, you could imagine getting to do that you'd never be invited to go and do, you know, or opening a baseball season in, in Tokyo in front of 30, 40,000 people live on TV, you know. But, but as, I, as I recall these ones, they're all ones where all that's in your mind at the time is the downside. Again, you sound quite miserable here, don't I? You just imagine the embarrassment if you fall in the water in front of the, you know, aircraft carrier or you you know, fail to start three times in a row and have to walk mournfully back inside, you know, and they just can the whole thing for the, you know, arena. You know, you're always torn up by the risk of the downside. <laughs> but all of those events, um, you know, I've done stuff in India and in Brazil, you know, all over America, um, Australia, um, all over the Middle East, you know, in front of um, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, we were due to do one in front of Dezos. Uh, you know, we've done stuff with Musk. You know, we've, we've done the most amazing things. Branson, five TED events, including the big, 
uh, Ted Vancouver in 2017. You know, I mean, they're all kind of pinch yourself moments. Yeah, it's very humbling for somebody that started in a farmyard with a mad idea. Yeah, but I mean, the, some of the best ideas, you know, can start <laughs> in a farmyard. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I love your approach to innovation and rapid in, iterations. Um, one of the things I didn't touch on earlier is how do you actually, you know, how do you know how fast you go and how much fuel you have? Yeah, so we, we've used quite a number of times various heads-up display systems, essentially augmented reality systems, of which there are numerous available almost every week. There seems to be another startup with another new snazzy augmented reality system. So I'm sure most of your audience will know exactly what this is. But, uh, you know, essentially it's a bit like a Tony Stark, Iron Man kind of heads up display system. I mean, not dissimilar to what you have in a jet fighter or, a, you know, an Apache attack helicopter, etc. It, it, it's a beautiful use case because, you know, unsurprisingly, you can't really look down at a bunch of dials very easily when you're flying. It's not really ideal. Um, so if you've got, you know, pro projected in front of you, pasted over the real world in a, in a parallax-free kind of manner, nice engine and fuel data. Particularly, we used to do it in a way, when we used this a lot, uh, we just, we wouldn't show fuel. You know, we took a leaf out of the book of, I think, how the Apache works, where it doesn't tell you how many liters you've got, or tons or kilos or whatever. It tells you, you have got, um, you know, 10 minutes more flight time left. That's a really useful summary of information. Or even better, I think, in some ways, it tells you whether you're about to run out of fuel to get back to where you know your home base is. We didn't go that far. <laughs> but we would just present a countdown minutes, seconds timer of when you're going to run out of fuel. Um, so that was really useful. And certainly the engine startup information, I mean, they only take a minute, 45 seconds usually. Next generation take a ludicrous 10 seconds to start up. But I mean, seeing all that information again at a live event, if you see one of the engines maybe not come up to temperature right, you get a really useful bit of early warning that you may be able to kill them all, recheck that engine and then go again. You know, all that information was really valuable to have projected up in your helmet. And if any of our listeners want to experience this, this firsthand, um, how do they get hold of you and get one of those training days arranged? Yeah, so, um, I mean, for a start, like I say, on Instagram, Take On Gravity, you can see lots of clients training there. There's several client videos now on uh, Gravity Industries on YouTube. If you go to our website, which is gravity.co, so it's gravity.co, Charlie Oscar, uh, there's an inquiry form on there, and you can email us through there, and then we share with you the information on what it takes to then learn to fly with us. We've trained over 50 people. We've got a lot on the waiting list thanks to the COVID situation. We, we train people typically in California at Camarillo Air Base, uh, airport private jet terminal um, in the UK, down in Wiltshire here. But mostly now we're, we're focusing on the Goodwood estate where we've flown at the Festival of Speed and various events there. And there's a wonderful setup. I was only there yesterday um, just fettling it. Um, and you come along for a day. Um, and uh, as I say, in an entirely safe way, you're just clipped in and you just learn in your own time this wonderful, natural, intuitive, stable balance. And uh, it is, you know, again, I'm going to sound biased here, but, you know, we've not had one complaint of a, of a, you know, out of all those 50 people, they've all somewhat lost their minds. And some of them have gone on to uh, become uh, race pilots with us for the race we were due to launch in Bermuda, which will happen at some point when we're allowed to travel. Um, but that's, that's the way in. And then, then the other way, you know, the, the, the kind of cheaper way of learning is, or the cheaper way of witnessing it is at one of our events. But I mean, again, you know, your guess is as good as mine when we're allowed out. To, to do any events uh, but they will be they will be coming to a, an interesting piece of water near you at some point because it's such an engaging 
you know, we've had such amazing feedback from racing these around, you know, water, uh, whether it's lake rivers or seafronts next to cities, um, it will be happening. Um, what's, your, what's your ambitions for the race in long term? I mean, I've seen the video clips. You mentioned you have, I think, five to seven uh, pilots now. And the racing looks really cool over the water. I mean, I would love to do it. I, I don't think your suit's uh, powerful enough to lift me up, to be honest. Oh, the, the, the next two. The next two variants, they, they, there's no, there's no, no hiding. Uh, I mean, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm about 75 kilos or so, and I can't deny, you know, it's flying. So if you want to be yeah. nimble, especially flying at altitude. And I mean that like places like Johannesburg or the mountains in Arizona, both of which we've flown at 6,000 feet. It's amazing yeah. how, well, in fact, you sound like you're South African. I am South African. <laughs> there you go. So, you know, Johannesburg, there's not much I air do. there as, as, yeah. as most people know. So, um, you know, I can't deny being light helps, but the next two variants, as I say, go up in increments of 20 and 50 kilos additional lift. So no, there's, yeah. there's, uh, that will cover most people. Um, yeah. So, so, but the ambition for the race series, um, yeah, if you think about Red Bull air races, most people have seen those sort of pylon races with those amazing planes whizzing around. Um, if you think about that on a smaller scale without all the health and safety nightmare of trying to sign off that happening outside a city, um, and all the logistics of having an airport to supply the planes, you know, for landing and taking off and all the other challenges. If you imagine that in a smaller scale, but much closer to the audience with a real life Iron Man, Iron Woman type, you know, engagement of people flying in a way that your brain genuinely refuses to acknowledge is real, which is yeah. usually the feedback. You imagine doing that, you know, outside, you know, so Sydney Harbour you know, the Bay Area, um, you know, the canals in um, uh, Dubai, you know, all these kind of amazing places. And, and what's really fun is, despite it looking like something that, you know, it's it just out of this world, like a Marvel CGI movie reel, actually, it's very easy to go and deliver. You know, each pilot travels with two check-in suitcases with their suit in it. I mean, I've done this, you know, over a hundred flights around the world with my team. Um, so it doesn't have to cost millions and millions of dollars to put on, which is, I think, going to be quite appealing given the mess the world's in, <laughs> um, you know, we'll, we'll be in for the next few years. So um, I think it's going to be an amazing, inspirational festival of, of human machine technology where it's, you know, I love drone racing. I think it's amazing. And the pilots that fly those are superb, but the humans not in the action, the humans sitting there with some goggles on. Um, the feedback we've had is it's really, you know, inspiring to see humans flying like superheroes right in front of you and then they land the visor slides off and there's your hero or heroine right in front of you so i think it's an amazing advertising platform i think you know we've already got several big brands have sponsored um you know various different things we've done and there was a bunch of sponsors ready for the bermuda race you know if you want to manifest that inspirational spirit of going beyond and you know supporting both technology advancement and human capability then you know we we certainly blow the socks off every stem kids school um you know families kind of event we've ever done i've landed in front of four thousand kids in an arena before and you know i think they're they're screaming in a good way <laughs> um uh, drowned out the engine noise so uh so yeah there's lots of potential there i mean uh two things really uh stem obviously i think what you're doing uh you know you know scratching at the curiosity of the youth is really great because this is something that you know is far more exciting than a textbook uh, often is um but secondly, I, I, I mean, I'll look out for the races, really excited to watch it. And I mean, firstly, I think it's really, you know, something that is exciting to watch. Uh, the fact that it has that human element in it, you know, um, I think makes it a lot more appealing as a sports enthusiast. Looking at your workbench behind you, there's a lot of really cool kits in the back there. Uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask is around your fuel types. 
are you still looking to use diesel throughout or have you been looking at alternative uh, fuel sources going forward? Yeah, so at most events we use diesel. Um, where we can, we use jet fuel, and it's always a surprise to most people. Jet fuel and diesel are fundamentally the same product. Uh, jet fuel is just cleaner, and, and it's got a slight tweak to the grade. Um, you know, for necessity, you turn up, turn up at an event, usually with relatively little preparation time, uh, it's much easier to get hold of diesel. We can entirely run, and we have run in a few occasions, uh, biodiesel. Um, it, it burns just as well. It works just as well. So that's quite a nice option for us certainly for the race series i think in terms of going because uh, it's an it's an obvious follow-on question in terms of going to for instance electric um we've built an electric version one of my two boys i've got an 11 year old and 13 year old uh, we used my 11 year old who at the time was more like 10 and quite light we used him as a guinea pig i'll be clear on a tether uh, for the electric version because the biggest challenge is energy density um your energy density of a battery of a lithium-based battery is about 50 times worse than diesel or jet fuel or gasoline so when somebody, maybe Elon or friends, helps solve that problem, we are entirely ready to have an electric version. So, so basically, the flight fundamental problems is the battery weight and efficiency of battery energy storage for the electric gear. Yeah, it, it's the same. I mean, it's the same problem. You know, Teslas are amazing, right? They can out drag most other cars, but they still weigh two tons. You imagine yeah. if you could compress that energy in the same way that, that gasoline and diesel does so effortlessly. Uh, I mean, those cars are going to be painfully quick. <laughs> Um, so we, we have the same problem and this is the same problem, you know, uh, that the drone industry and the electric aircraft and electric helicopter and electric, you know, parcel delivery and taxi worlds are all grappling with, you know, um, it is very hard to compress safely energy into a stable form that doesn't weigh a lot of, you know, weigh a lot, which you've got to lift up. So that's our, that's our challenge. But anyway, we are, we are, we are ready and waiting to swap out our, our gas turbines for electric ducted fans um, wholesale when that energy storage solution is there. Thanks so much, Richard. I really appreciate having you on the podcast. It's been really great to listen to all the cool things you're doing. I can't recommend enough to our listeners to jump on YouTube, go look what it's all about, or go onto the Gravity Industries website. It's been an absolute pleasure having you, Richard. Is there anything you want to leave our audience with? Uh, no, I, I think yeah, your questions have been great. I, as I say, I, you know, it'll bring this to life in terms of seeing, uh, seeing what we're talking about here, if, if you see on those social media channels. But otherwise, you know, look forward to catching people when we're allowed out at, um, at a live event sometime. Perfect. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. If you are enjoying this show, please leave a review. Hit subscribe and stay tuned for more episodes.